0: There's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girls' night, we have to get our fix. And that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or a dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girls night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kelly's killer popcorn.com for american-made small batch delicious popcorn i might be vegetarian but that doesn't mean i can't enjoy a good spice rub my favorite place to get them is smoke bros a veteran owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs spice blends and seasonings Psst, guys you can even put it on your popcorn My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mmm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out SmokedBros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On last episode of the Video Archives podcast, Roger and Quentin were joined by Eli Roth and gave us a blow-by-blow with
1: Dressed to Kill. She went down on him in the cab, for Christ's sake. I got a cabbie giving me a blow-by-blow.
0: And saw the killer through the eyes of Laura Mars. Actually, Eyes of
2: Laura Mars was released under a different title in Boston, Eyes of Laura Maz.
0: And now, we bring you the after show. Your backstage pass to exclusive content, answers to your burning questions, and even more film discussion. I'm Betty Luce, I mean Gala Avery. Wow, you guys, what an episode. Despite my love for Mario Bava, I'm a self-admitted giallo novice. I learned so much about the genre by listening to Roger, Quentin, and Eli discuss the history, requirements, and cinematic language of what makes a giallo a giallo. And believe me, we're going to learn even more in next week's part two. Speaking of giallo, let's learn how to properly pronounce the word, because God knows I am always saying it wrong.
3: Is it pronounced giallo or yallo?
2: Giallo. It's giallo.
3: like yellow. Yeah, giallo. Giallo. Yallo. Is the G silent? No.
2: No, no it's soft. No, soft. It's, it's soft. It's not like giallo. It's giallo. Giallo. Like jello.
1: giallo. giallo. Like, yeah. giallo. Yeah, you, gotta make, you gotta make a lot out of the L-L-O. I, prefer, I prefer pudding to giallo.
0: Tomato, tomato giallo giallo as you may know eli roth grew up on the east coast in newton massachusetts although he wasn't a customer at the original video archive store it sounds like the local video store memories are universal experiences listen now as he shares his stories of bonding with friends over movies the tapes he was always searching for and his very first video store
2: well, my experience was, uh, you know, we were one of the first families that got a VCR because VCRs were very expensive back in the day. My friend Jeff had one and he was like, Jeff, where I wrote Thanksgiving with, he's like yeah. my, my hmm. best friend, Jeff Rendell. So Jeff had a VC, he had a VHS player. He may have even had a Betamax before. Wow. Jeff's hardcore. Jeff's yeah, dad hardcore. was hardcore. And I remember his dad buying like Star Wars for a $100 before it was out or going in like you know, it, it was one of these VHS things. And, and I remember going to his house in school, and he had The Jerk and The Godfather on <laughs> that, videos That's quite
0: a spectrum. And
2: I had to, like, beg my parents let me watch The Jerk. And his mom was, like, very—we were, like, eight. We finally got our parents to go. we watched The Jerk. And then he'd say, you've got to see The Godfather, where Mo Green gets his eyes shot out, <laughs> but we're not allowed to show you. So we would have a group of us in the basement. We were, like, nine. And he's playing the scene right up to where the gun gets raised. And then he'd stop and go, sorry, we don't know. No! <laughs> Like, Jeff used to torture us, but what was great was Jeff would have a sleepover, which eventually turned into what we called a wakeover, because if you fell asleep, you'd wind up with, you know, a Sharpie of swastikas yeah. and drawn on your forehead and, you know, moose on your balls or God knows what. But uh, he had creep show, and, you know, Jaws. Like, I remember this kid, like, if you had – I remember for my fourth grade birthday party, we you could rent a VHS machine And we watched, like, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. And I think Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Like, getting a videotape and a VHS rental was a a huge deal. But, like, the party was the novelty of watching a movie at a kid's house. That was something that was, like, you couldn't see on
3: television. From the rental side end, that was – a bad part of the business. So every time we sent out a machine, they would come back, like, with, like, you know, Syrup a popsicle inside of oh, it. Oh, Popcorn inside yeah. of the no, machine. Yeah.
2: It was terrible.
3: It, and so we started going through machines, and we were a small store. And so we ended up just leaving that to the bigger.
2: Oh, yeah. Bigger I mean, like well, well they started to get more affordable around, like, 81, 82. And this is when cable TV hit Massachusetts. Yeah. And I remember it was Continental Cablevision. and there were 48 channels with MTV. And suddenly it was HBO, Cinemax, Showtime. Before that, it was Starcase, which would have like four movies a month. Yeah. It was like rough cut, you know, They're like, <laughs> like an adult film. So, so suddenly you have all these movies, and you have a VCR. And I'm like, I was like the one hooking it up through a boombox and realizing you could start taping off of cable. But there was a video store. I remember the day we got it. And we went to this place called Video Smith. And I remember, like, the smell of the store and the case. No, it was, it was actually Movies to Go was the first one we went to. And Movies to Go was, like, a crazy concept. Like, you could take a movie from a theater and put it to in your house. To yeah, go. To go. <laughs> it was called Movies to Go. And Movies to Go, the first movies we rented where it was like Caddyshack and Blues Brothers. And we just were watching Caddyshack. And then it was like Stripes. There were all the movies we had either seen or heard of or wanted to catch up on. But suddenly, like movies to go. And then another one called... Then there was an explosion where this place... Entertainment Incorporated would go and they had like a little scratch ticker after 10 rentals. And they they knew me there, so they would start giving me like, oh, you want the poster for The Nest and Hellhole and, Devilfish? <laughs> like, and oh, I love
0: devil, devil Fish? Like Oh, I Bava, love of Devil course. Fish.
2: So Michael Sopku. So um, you know, you start getting the posters of like creepers, like every my my entire room is filled with Mother's Day VHS posters. And then sort of the best one, the two best ones were called Video Smith. And Video Smith had some pretty hardcore movies. And and you had all these rules, like... You knew that the larger the box was, the worse the movie was. Yeah. Like three on a meat hook. If that was like with a tray, if that was in the size of a Captain Crunch box, you knew it was just <laughs> going to be, you know, demented. Like you knew it was going to be terrible. But then, you know, we our, our favorite memories of me and Jeff, the great thing about Video Smith was you could take the T there, which was the train mm-hmm. in Boston. So after school we could walk to our, because the other places you needed a car to drive. But when you're 13 or 14, we would take the T, we would go to Video Smith, and they had like the three-night rental. Mm-hmm. So we'd go there on a Friday. We'd have to turn until Sunday or Monday, and we would have three movies. There's like your main two movies, and the third one would always be like that "what the fuck" film that you watch it. You know, That's one. It's kind of and like kind our, show. Our, our It's show. exactly, but it's exactly what you do because you're basically. Gonna have dinner. You're gonna order pizza. So you're first to be watching. It's seven thirty. There's eight o'clock. Then there's a ten o'clock when your parents go to bed. But then at like eleven forty-five, you're like, okay, fuck it, Splatter University is <laughs> going on or Hamburger the Motion Picture. Which, I remember Hamburger, and of course yeah. that becomes your favorite one because yeah. you know it's going to be so terrible, but you just love that. You know, or I mean, there were there were so many movies. So, but I remember Jeff and I would go to you know, Video Smith, and we'd always look for the box of Mother's Day and it was always out. So we thought this must be the greatest movie ever made because it's never in, even on a Wednesday. Then we found out they had another store in another town and the tape had gotten returned to their other store. Oh. So the box was there. It was still in their system. But like there were no tapes in the boxes. You'd have to take the box, go up to the front um, and then tell them. And so we would sit there and <laughs> actually we'd wait to see what other people were going to rent that I was remember how
3: our store was. We, uh, we yeah. had all the tapes held in the back of the store. And for a long while, because you couldn't also keep the boxes back there, we would, ha- we would put like sticky notes onto the um, box. And if it had a sticky tab on it, that was rented. Yeah, but they would fall off all day of long, and it was like a nightmare. It was well, a bad system.
2: Yeah, we had well, we had a thing where it, it wasn't like Blockbuster where they put the tape behind the thing. I mean, the Blockbuster was so big they figured it out. Yeah, um, but they also were you they know industrialized. It. They it. were the worst. They 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 yeah. just were super mainstream. It was like vanilla. It was like top forty radio. Mm-hmm. It was like a hundred diehards. Yeah, exactly. But but before that, and when it was Video Smith, we would listen to what other people were going to rent, and we're like, okay, they want to get should like should we get that this double bill of Executioner and Frozen? Screen? And one guy's like, this looks cool. While he's looking at the box, Jeff would run up and grab it and oh rent my it. God. And then we would sit there and watch them as they would go up and excitedly try to rent. Like, it just got rented. Like,
0: By those two guys well, over there. Rat, yeah, they didn't rat us <laughs> out. But they
2: had weird movies. They had pink flamingos. They had stuff they didn't oh, wow. know what it was. So, you know, Argento stuff. Like that was what was cool about Video Smith. Um, but just we would go there, you know, if I mean it, we would get Friday afternoon, 4 o'clock, probably by 6.30 or 7, we had made our selections. It would be a full two and a half, three, four hours examining every every time we went in. It wasn't like we got bored of reading because there was no other source for what these movies were. You know, when you look at, like, The Mutilator, I had read about it in Fangoria. I just, like, just these weird, but a lot of the, you know, those kind of the three on the meat hook kind of weird... Um, you know, weird movies. We just would like read the box, look at the descriptions, try to look at the artwork, see if it matched up with the artwork, Dr. Butcher MD, Medical Deviant. And just it's so funny now, knowing how the titles of those movies changed or the gates of hell and and how the the, the names of the directors themselves Changed when you rented, you know, Witchery or Ghost House, never said Umberto Lenzi, it would say Humbert Humphreys. You know, they had 30 yeah. different names. So I I do remember my my introduction to Italian horror. Also, if you rented a cool movie, that was like currency in eighth grade. Like mm-hmm. I remember some kid was like, Have you seen this movie Demons? This yeah. is the craziest fucking movie ever made. And I was like, they don't tell you it's Demoni by Lamberto Bari. They don't tell you it's Italian or that they're, it just was weird. Like, why are they speaking English? And and why looks, is, everything, why uh, is everything dubbed? dubbed and, why yeah. is everything dubbed? Why are the same voices you can use? And was that the guy whose voice from that other movie and <laughs> the same, like there's the one black guy who's in demons who's in all those movies from that period. And all the cops are dubbed the same. It's guys like, yeah, we got a cop over here. He's trying to do a New York police officer <laughs> accent. Like that guy's in every movie. And, um, they just, you know, I didn't understand the Goblin score. It wasn't until later, you know, about 1990, you know, when the internet starts. I remember going to film school and meeting other movie nerds and comparing notes on Dario Argento. And then the IMDb starts. And kind of by the mid-'90s, you can start piecing together what the hell these movies were. And they took pieces of other films, and they would re, just re-box yeah, them, them, retitle re-box, them, yeah. re-edit them. It was kind of the Wild West. But that was the fun Was was when you got a discovery. Like, I remember... Or if I was sick, like it was great when we had a VHS and I remember being sick and there's nothing on television. It was like daytime soaps and stuff. You know, my mom was like, do you want me to go rent you a movie? Yeah. And I went, yeah. And she rented The Shining. And I was like, this is great. It's a pretty cool it was, mom it was to go rent to The my Shining. Parents, my parents were amazing. Like I remember we watched with my dad, we, we went to like, you know, Video Smith and we watched... Pieces and Basket Case. (laughs) And I didn't understand what 16 millimeter was or 35 millimeter or a Spanish horror, but those were like the two greatest memories I had ever renting movies. They're just these delights. And the whole family watched Batman. And we're all laughing at the absurdity of it, but we loved it. Like we loved Basket Case. So then what's cool is my parents could make Basket Case references or Pieces references, or they knew what Mother's Day was. It was funny. It was just like texting with, Charles Kaufman today, since Mother's Day, I've been texting with him, asking him, can I can you go to your basement, please? And dig up the score to Mother's <laughs> Day because I want it. And, <laughs> and who played Ike? Because IMDb says Frederick Kaufman, but it's yeah. not. It's some guy named Gary. And he's like, you're right. It's not Frederick Coffin. It's a guy named Gary. And I'm going to look it up because he. I think he died. But I know his name. I got to figure it out. And
0: that's also so important for everyone listening out there, like what Eli just said is like IMDB said it's one thing, and it's not. Yeah.
2: So well, don't trust just,
0: everything that you see on the internet.
2: Someone entered it. Just
0: so someone entered it. Someone like you out there entered it into the internet. So don't believe everything you see on IMDB. Yeah. I was really excited for Quentin, Roger, and Eli to discuss Dress to Kill* because that meant I had an excuse to watch the movie all over again. Dress to Kill* may not be my favorite Brian De Palma film. That would have to be *Phantom of the Paradise* but it's definitely in my top five. But I'm not the only one who loves the movie. Dress to Kill was a favorite at video archives, so much so the walls were adorned with memorabilia from the movie.
1: Well, one thing about Dress to Kill that has a gigantic connection to video archives is, well, one, as Roger has pointed out a few times, the store that is the precursor to video archives is video outtakes. Video outtakes, for whatever reason... Have the entire lobby card set of Dress to Kill. Lance, is On their reason? back wall. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But then when we started Video Archives, Lance got one of those plastic giant bus stop posters, which I now have. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of those uh, uh, giant plastic bus stop posters of dress to Kill, and that was in the office. And I take that back. It actually
3: probably wasn't Lance's lobby cards. Those were probably Scott's. Those were probably Scott's. Yeah. Uh, I agree. It's Scott, the son of the owner.
0: Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. All of us here at the podcast are fans of De Palma, with each of us having our own favorite movie of his. Whether it's High Mom, The Fury, Blowout, Scarface, Mission Impossible, there are so many movies to pick from when deciding your favorite. And a good argument can be made for most of them. We couldn't help but discuss De Palma's track record of amazing movies. But there might be a few that mess up his run.
3: He's finding his... And with this film, I mean, also with Carrie... And frankly, I love all you know that I love the Fury. As, yeah,, yeah, yeah. As, as well. you know that I'm a weird fan of that movie. I like long, long time fan of that film. I just love
2: that movie. not weird in this room. No, yeah, I know yeah, it's not yeah.
3: weird in this movie, but in this room, but, uh, you know, among people talking about your favorite de Palma film, I, well, I wouldn't say that one <laughs> i would I wouldn't say it, but it's easily one of my favorites. I mean, I looked at this. i started I put his movies all together and just started looking at them, and I was thinking, you know, God, Dress to kill and home movies. Those are like my two favorite Di Palma films. Then I was like, well, I'd love the Fury, but would I prefer Blowout? No. No, I like the Fury more than I go. Well, then there's Carrie. And it's like you start like going in either direction from Dress to Kill. And it's a lot of really strong work. No, but no. but it's definitely work that
1: is no, from, you know, look, work
3: from, looking at his parents. From from his Car- his from cinematic Car- parents.
1: From Carrie to blowout. I mean, it's just it's just a magnificent body of work it's well, just a magnificent run and, uh, uh, one of the greatest runs of, of any director of the seven. I'm
3: gonna. but i'm gonna i i don't know how you feel about it but i'm gonna include scarface just because I, yeah, I love scarface i, 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 love I can't, body I can't and, and no, body double
1: uh, well no i would include it's Scar- still a run i <laughs> you're you're still I running He's no, still not, running <laughs> a run is one movie to, one mo- one movie connected to the next movie okay you when you hop through wise guys you can't just go
2: to <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah what year was that Mm. Oh yeah, uh- <laughs> Wise Guys was, a- Wise Guys was, was after Scarface. Was okay, so you, you see, you still got Body Double and Scarface before Scarface and Body Double before you get to Wise Guys. Yeah,
3: before you get to the uh, mm. that time.
0: Yeah. Out of curiosity, Josh, what is your favorite De Palma movie? Oh, putting me on the spot. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> probably Mission Impossible. <laughs> yeah, because am <I'm> pretty basic. <laughs> Mission Impossible is a good movie, though. It is good. It's He's really, really good. good. And also, uh, is it John Voight? Who plays? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah and John Voight used to play up until Mission Impossible. He was always like the hero, and so when De Palma put him as the villain, it like differently typecast him.
3: It was also, I mean, he also wasn't expected to be the villain. Exactly. When the starts, so it's a good switcheroo.
0: I know. I talked to my dad about it and when I watched. I'm like, oh, it's John Voight. He's the villain, and my dad's like, ah, oh, it's like the time has passed, right. and now John Voight is seen as a villain because of Mission Impossible. <laughs> we're slowly learning what makes a giallo a giallo. And we'll get more into the requirements as we analyze the remaining films in part two. When I read the protests from the women against violence in pornography and media on Dress to Kill, they mentioned a few other movies that they wanted to boycott. One of them was William Friedkin's Cruising. What would it take to make Cruising into a giallo? Listen and find out.
1: No, no I mean, it, from <laughs> his it, perspective, if cruising had been about the killer killing, and then some gay guy who's who's in the village, who's an who artist, who becomes a uh, yeah. amateur detective trying to figure gets it out. Into dangerous- <laughs> Pacino been a and then minor actually, lo- and then actually looks like the killer, killer. From the, and the cops actually think he's the killer. Then it would be a jello. Then it would be a jello.
0: <laughs> when I think about who I am now as a 26 year old woman, I think back to myself as a kid and remember that all of my favorite movies are pretty much still the same. I was raised on Fantastic Planet and Baron Munchausen, and when the girls from my class dressed up as fairies and princesses for Halloween, I was always that weird girl acting out Night of the Living Dead, which the boys in my class were somehow not into. Even now, my ideal date night is not watching an Avengers movie. Sure, I'll do it, but when I find out that my date has never seen Taxi Driver, you know I'm going to put it on. Yeah, I'm that weird girl you knew growing up, and I'm still that weird girl now. As you get older, though, you find your tribe. Eli Roth revealed to me that he, too, hasn't changed much since he was a kid, with a very special story about a party he was invited to and the tape that he brought with him.
2: Pretty much by 86, everyone had a VCR. It was pretty standard in the suburbs. And I was in Newton, Massachusetts. which was kind of like a sort of upper middle class Jewish area, predominantly Jewish area, but mixed And I remember going to this kid's house. It was like John Baldessirini was having like a bunch of people over. And it was like in seventh grade. There were eighth graders there because his sister was in eighth grade. It was like a cool night. I was like, all right, this will be fun. Like I wasn't a guy who got invited out to parties like that. (laughs) And I don't know why, but I brought a tape with me. And everyone was like, we're going to watch Breakfast Club. And I've never been so bored watching a movie. Literally, I was like, why would you watch Breakfast Club in a world where porkies exist? Yeah. Where there's just like nudity and hijinks <laughs> when it's fun. And Breakfast Club is a high school movie where nothing happens. It's just. People sitting in Uh, a fucking room. It has a kind of an odd message too.
3: (laughs) It's sort of a weird message when you think about it.
2: I've never really. It's it's a message of conformity. Yeah, a
3: lot of
0: movies uh, at that time are though. Like Like, changing
3: yourself for other people. I'm going to
0: be honest. Most John Hughes movies are about are about about conforming. Ducky doesn't get the girl. It's true. He should get the girl. Because Ducky rolls, But do you remember what tape you brought with you <laughs> oh, that night? so
2: yeah. So everyone is sitting there. And I, I mean, that's my instinct in seventh grade was I'm going to my first party. It was going to be girls. Let me bring a horror movie. <laughs> yeah. Thinking that this would, like, make me the coolest kid ever. And I go, there's a much better film. And I had done the thing where you take a VCR. I got the, uh, the coax in and out. Yeah. I, I would borrow a VCR for the weekend. And rip movies all weekend. My friend would bring his VCR over, and I would go VCR to VCR, and I would just copy tapes because I brought Reanimator, mm. and I was like, "Let me put this on." And the entire room cleared out except for maybe one person. And they're like, "From the opening scene," and then people would walk in. They're like, "That is the sickest fucking." People were like, "You can't bring Eli over. He's a serial killer." I was like. <gasps> You guys all suck like Reanimator is the greatest. Yeah, like why would comes. you watch The Breakfast Club when you can see a decapitated head going down on a girl? Like what? <laughs> like why is that how is that even like a fair competition? Why would you watch anything else when Reanimator Exists. is in your house and none of you have seen it? It's the greatest movie ever.
0: I wish that I had been at a party in 7th grade where someone brought Reanimator. Jeffrey Combs is one of the greatest actors of all time. And Eli is right! Who wouldn't want to watch that instead of Breakfast Club? Sorry to all my Breakfast Club lovers out there, but it's not my favorite Hughes movie. That would be Uncle Buck. Just like how Dressed to Kill's script became vastly different from what we saw on screen, there are lots of questions about how much John Carpenter's script for Eyes of Laura Mars changed before the movie was made. Roger and Quentin discuss the possibilities, along with a story from Roger about producer Mace Newfeld.
3: And now I'm really curious to read the Carpenter script. Yeah. Because I gotta say, to come- I mean, They're all
1: they're all shitting on it. <laughs> every yeah, well, Wait, Well, Brad Dorsey seems to be shitting on the script they made. <laughs> yeah, he's shitting
3: on what they're what they're doing in that moment. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, everybody starts off making a movie. Like Mace Newfeld once told me a story.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, the producer. Yeah. And he said, you know, um, Every time I make a movie, it's like these big movies and you know, the <laughs> scripts are being developed for a year and a half, two years. And, you know, it's like we go through 30 drafts and generally a week before we shoot, I go and I f- dig out the first script mm-hmm. and I reread it. And that's when I remember why I wanted to make the movie. Oh,
1: yeah. No, I've heard that before. I've heard that from <laughs> a lot of people, actually. Yeah. yeah
3: and he's like, you know, nine to- like, whenever it's been good, he's gone back to the original script. Yeah. At least for those moments. And so I'm mm-hmm. curious
1: to now. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, especially because
3: because like, I the the feeling I get is that it's not the Carpenter script that Brad Dorf was even exposed to. Yeah,
1: he probably would never read it. Yeah,
3: but like, can you imagine like coming on? I'll do the movie, but I want my own script. Take a big shit on whatever. Like, why are you doing the movie
1: at all? Because they wanted him. And John P. goes, "I'm not going to do this script. Well, will just turn it into whatever you want." Yeah. Well, he did, And then you yeah. hire a writer and then you work well, hard on it. And then you do all the fashion stuff, which is amazing. Yeah,
3: it's yeah. great. You go out there and you spend that studio money shooting. You you, you you get Helmut mm-hmm. Newton to come yeah. board and you start doing. And
1: Well, Don Siegel's way was uh, when he was hired on to uh, uh, look at a, a piece of, uh, to, to do a movie. And they go, hey, we want you to do this movie. And they show him the script. And he goes, okay, I want every single script you ever commissioned for this. I want to read every version that every writer wrote. Right on. And then he would get all the scripts together and then he would proceed to cut and paste.
3: His own version. His own
1: version. Of the best of, of, of the everything. the best of everything. Yeah, figure out,
3: take the best of all those great minds <laughs> yeah. that came together. Don't trust the people who were corralling
1: it. Mm-hmm. Get all that good material. He would read every single solitary thing and that's how he put together Coogan's Bluff, which is the movie that changed his career. Yeah. Made him a A-list director.
0: I've already professed my love for Brad Dorf countless times. And if you're new here and haven't heard me talk about him yet, I love you, Brad Dourif. But there's another actor who had an absolutely amazing performance in Eyes of Laura Mars that we have yet to talk about, which is René Auberginois. I recognize Auberginois from his role as Odo on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It was such a pleasure watching him in Eyes of Laura Mars, as his character was so different from Odo. Quentin, Roger, and Eli also thought his performance was a standout take a sneak peek from our debate during our upcoming awards show when we discuss Aubergine Wah's performance in the movie.
2: But every line reading that Rene has has its something to it. He's but it's
0: also, there's also
1: something else about it that's really good. And, and, it, and it's different from the other Red Herring characters in uh, Eyes of Laura Mars. You buy him being Laura Mars' assistant. Or per, agent, uh, yeah, agent, or publicist, or whatever it is. You see the way he works in her life, and you see, you know, he seems to have a function. Not like why the fuck does she hire Brad Dorf as to be the fucking driver of all the drivers in New York? Why does she hire that guy? Why does this? Why does this? Why? why we'll say, we'll why, save a slice of cake for you. Yeah, why? Hey, 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 you're, you're a piece of cake. <laughs> you're a piece of cake. <laughs> yeah. and, and I just love that. But okay, both of you, they Brad Dorf and Renee, are arguing with each other. She's like, okay, I of you. Both of you. Shut up. Oh, both of you? <laughs> both of you. Okay. Me and your driver.
0: <laughs> also there's a really like tortured feeling actually to René Auberginois' performance because yeah. he keeps on getting the butt of the joke. Everyone keeps on making the gay joke at him. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. you're a piece of cake and everything and he's just so fed up. Yeah. It's a really good performance and a really subtle performance. And too. I
1: love it when he gets the 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 Laura Bar's uh, photograph of him looking silly. Yes. <laughs> and then his whole thing I hate it. I love it. <laughs> By the way, his Lloyd, he could, <laughs> that's one of the best line ratings. Uh? Yeah, that's amazing. I hate it. I love, I love it. it. No, the Lloyd Bridges impression.
2: You should see my Lloyd Bridges. He looks like Lloyd <laughs> Bridges. It's spooky. Weird. It's weird. It's uncanny.
0: To wrap up our episode today, I couldn't help but ask Eli about the first time that he met Quentin. Eli not only talks all about meeting him for the first time, but also shares how Quentin mentored him in the industry.
2: I was telling the story to my wife yesterday. I was driving. I was at Birds. We were having a meeting about cabin fever, trying to figure out, like, how to raise money. And I walked out, and I saw him sitting there. And my friend, Ed, was like, there's Tarantino. There's Tarantino. I was like, Mr. Mr. Tarantino, sir? It is so cool. I was like, hey, I like just want to say I love your movies and you're a huge inspiration. And I want to, you know, I'm trying to make a horror film. He's like, oh, man, good luck. Very cool. Very cool. And that was it. That was the first time I met him. Second That's time. That was exactly. Yeah,
0: how you just like quoted Quentin. I can imagine him saying that actually. Second
2: time <laughs> exactly was right. I, had, cause K and effects did the gore and cabin fever and they just done Kill Bill. So we'd been kind of talking about, you know, they've been telling Quentin, you know, there's this kid who made this fucking cabin splatter movie. It's old school. It's balls to the wall. You're going to love it. So I went to a screening of this movie undead at the William Morris agency, the old building. And, uh, and I was Quentin was sitting right in front of me. I was like,
3: "Excuse me, Mr. Tarantino."
2: It's <laughs> like, "Hey, I, I made the movie Cabin Fever." He's like, "Oh yeah, Howard Berger told me about that. This is really cool." And then I go, "Yeah." I was like, "I, I, you know, I'm in the middle. Of, like, can't wait for you to see. Him. I'm really excited." And he's like, "He's like, yeah, it sounds really cool. It sounds really cool." And then afterwards, where I was leaving the screen, I was like, "Wow!" And then he pulls up in his car. And he stops the car, rolls down the window, and goes, "Cabin Fever, I got it," and drove away. I was like, "Whoa!" That was in March of 2003. Then in June, it was the LA Film Festival. And they were like, it was a midnight screening at the film festivals like a Saturday night. And there's photos on Wire Image. Like if you go on Wire Image, Eli Rothway's very first like wire image photos, or something <laughs> was me, they were like, Quentin's online to see your movie. And this is when you used to wait online to get a seat at the Sunset Five. And I went out and it was like Quentin. he was editing his movie and he took a break to like come out with his date that night to watch Cabin Fever. And I was like, dude, we're having like a little pre-party get together. He's like, no, oh, no, I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm having fun, kind of standing online line waiting for a movie. You know, I like it. And the next day, Julie uh, McLean writes me. He was like, hey, Quentin would like you to invite, invite you to his house uh, to watch movies. And it was Howard Berger's print, Howard Berger's dad's print of War of the Gargantuas. So we watched it. And he's like, sit next to me. And we are just like, we're, and then we went in the house and he's playing music. And he starts giving me those incredible career advice. About how to like go to every film festival and talk about movies in that country, and he's like, you know, he's like, my movie is my passport to the world. That's a ticket <laughs> around the world. All right, you know, I'm like, it's gonna be like you got to go with Cabin Fever. He's like, he's got to go to fuck, Japan and fucking talk about Kurosawa, talk about Takashi Miike, you know, dude, talk about on Sono. I don't talk about the most obvious directors. You know, fucking Australian cinema. You're not gonna go there, and, and you know. Talking talk about fucking Peter Weir. You can talk about fucking Razorback, all right? Like, you know, you can talk about Brian Treachered Smith, all right? You can fucking turkey shoot, all right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's a great idea. Like, you're right. Like, I know. Richard Franklin. Yeah, exactly. He's like, me, you took my fucking road games, yeah. all right? So I was like, that's a great idea. So then I remember going home that night and signing up, going to, like, New Zealand, Australia. I was like, yes, 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 yes. And I was like, get me interviews. And I'd go on the radio shows. And I was like, my favorite. And I just started, like, going Fucking with the most obscure deep cup of shit I loved. The movies I really, really, really loved. You truly loved. You know, not like pretending about like loving, you know I mean I love Pic I do love Picnic and Hanging Rock, but who wants to hear some you know, you don't want no one who gives a fuck about that. Here listening to some kid who make a splatter movie talk about Peter Weir. <laughs> I mentioned Yahoo Serious and Jacko in every and Crocodile Dundee 2. I mean, they just oh God, like, I love they were just like cringing at what I was saying. I was like, are you serious? Yahoo Serious. Like, I'm like, the blueberry kitten pie. They're like, you shouldn't, like, is that the only thing you feel about Australia? I'm like, no, we know Jacko. Mark's just like, enter the energizer, hit a surprise. Yeah. They were like, oh my <laughs> God. But knowing, you know, stuff about like, like Turkey Shoot or some of their, yeah. you know, the treacherous with stunt rock, those kinds of films, it was so fun. But for me that visceral one of going to his house and watching War of the Gargantuas and then being in his kitchen and having him take that interest in me. Because he's like, there's no handbook yep. for what you're no. supposed to do with your movie and it hadn't come out yet. It's June. It's like coming out to September. And, and he,
3: he gave out
2: about as good of a handbook as the best. Uh, Quentin know. was the most generous, 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 supportive person. And that's it like before I had ever done anything, from the moment I met him at Birds to see him seeing him at the screening. I feel like an emotional thing about it, like at Undead. And then seeing him at the first screening of Cabin Fever to that night at his house to pushing me as an actor for Inglourious pass to pushing me as a writer, director in a hostel. It's like he's been like a true, true, like no one like has never had a friend like him that just did it because he loved me and believed in me. And he wanted me to be my best because he wanted to see my movies. You know, and then, like, him coming to the editing room of Hostel, I had the first 45 minutes cut, and he was, like, hitting my, like, this is so fucking tense, oh, my God, it's a fucking, you know, like that. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, you know, I wrote Hostel because he told me to. I turned down a Warner Brothers movie for $250,000, more money I'd ever seen in my life. He's like, he goes, I don't want to see you do one of these fucking shitty comedies. He's like, what's what's that movie you have? And I told him idea for Hostel. He's like, are you fucking kidding me? He's like, it's the best fucking idea for a horror movie I've heard in 10 years. you got to make that. I was like, what if no one sees it? He goes, fuck, fuck About opening weekend. <laughs> Think about the weekend 15 years from now, people still watching it in a sleepover. That's the only fucking weekend that matters.
0: The studio movie that Eli Roth turned down? Dukes of Hazard. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into the Video Archives After Show. Make sure to tune in next week to hear us talk about the final two American Giallo films. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have some tapes to watch. I'm Gala Avery, signing out for today. See you next time on the video archives after show. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it. Besides the fact that the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives. I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts.